You're listening to the Back Home Network, presented by Homefield Apparel. Well, we're here. I'm Bob Motes. Welcome to X's and Joe's, a podcast dedicated to decoding the winning formula in college basketball. And I'm Mike Weymouth. Welcome you to episode two of X's and Joe's, Coaching Tenures, Chip Stacks, and Honeymoons. How do coaches survive? So, Bob, um, despite ourselves, we made it to a second episode. Yeah, I mean, call it a holiday miracle, uh, to say the least. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I, I've not heard of any uh, lawyers' injunctions or viewer complaints so far. So uh, not, not gotten wood. any phone calls from anybody that you know or called in any offices. So yeah, I'm going to call that a win. Exactly. No, HR has not uh, knocked on our door yet. <laughs> so we're, we're quite yet. happy about that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I was really happy. I think with episode one, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm still sort of waiting. For uh, to learn what our initiation ritual is for joining the back home network, I I'm thinking you know I might you know and we may have to truck you in for this one. We're up at Delphi a week before uh, Selection Sunday, doing a talkie run with uh, monsters at the uh, at one of the at one of the convenience stores right up there for the bracketology <laughs> yeah. guys. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, some kind of butler or maid service, uh, you know, for the for the Delphi folks. <laughs> it's like, that, yeah, that guys, th- this bag of chips is not refilling itself. No, no sir. It's <laughs> that or or maybe Galen calls us in and has us go pick up Dagwoods for the kids at the media school. Sometime. Yeah, that that would. Yeah, that would be convenient, too. <laughs> I'm actually volunteering there. I have no. Yeah, we can we, 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 we can kill a few birds with one stone. Any chance I get to go to Dagwoods, I'm calling it a win, too. Exactly. Yeah, that's a win win. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but I guess before we get started, let's, uh, yeah, we should have a brief word about our sponsor, Homefield Apparel. So, yeah, we were talking offline about some of our recent uh, touring on the uh, the Homefield website. So, uh, maybe, Bob, why don't you share uh, some of the stuff you were finding on the website? So, again, uh, now that Christmas is over, we've, we've got all of the shopping out of the way, but then we start thinking ahead for birthdays, Father's Day, those types of those types of things for the family. And my father-in-law, he actually grew up in Providence, a uh, graduate of Providence. His dad was a um, professor there for, for many years uh, in, I think, biology. And uh, he, uh, he was there in the 60s. And so they got a whole slew of Providence uh, T-shirts, basketball shirts from that, you know, the, inspired by that era. Yeah. But as you go down a little further, there it is, a 1987 Final Four Providence Ooh. T-shirt. And thinking about this podcast and what we're doing here, we're going to be talking about Billy Donovan. Oh, Billy Donovan, yeah, that's true. As well as probably throwing a few things about Rick Pitino. And, true. you know, you kind of just look back and that's just giving that, that that warm feeling you think, you know, when you're looking, when you're thinking about, you know, thinking about what great gifts to get people or what great gifts to get yourself when you got that $50 gift card that you don't know what to do with. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, on, on, on my end, I was scrolling through the Homefield site uh, you know, just a little bit before Christmas. And uh, I found a 1980s vintage Auburn uh, bomber jacket. And it just screamed that era, like Bo Jackson, Chuck Person, Pat Dye. 
Um, yeah, Charles Barkley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the version of Charles Barkley that was, you know, being fat shamed by Bob Knight to get him on the 84 mm-hmm. Olympic team. So, yeah, that's <laughs> those, yeah, yeah. those fun times. <laughs> yeah, definitely so. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, I'm not an Auburn fan. Obviously, you aren't either, mm-hmm. um, especially after that uh, mm-hmm. that recent game a few weeks ago. But um, but if I were buying for an Auburn fan, I think home field would uh, definitely be the first stop for uh, for my War Eagle shopping list. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, yeah, we encourage all listeners to go and check out all the great uh, college uh, retro wear that you'll find at home field. And you can find it on their website at homefieldapparel.com. So let's jump right in, Bob. Let's talk about coaching tenures. Yeah. Have you ever noticed there are very few happy endings for college coaches and that so many times, you know, you and I over the years, you know, we're both connoisseurs of mob movies. We've probably seen Goodfellas sitting next to each other at least a dozen times. At least a dozen times. Yeah. That was our, that was like our default film that there's like nothing else that anyone could agree on. It was like, okay, well, it's just, you know, it's Goodfellas. Sorry. I I think Wema theater was launched at Dunhill with Goodfellas to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Dunhill, Dunhill apartment D five. Yeah. Yeah. I think Goodfellas was the uh, inaugural, uh, inaugural film. Yeah. So, so again, I mean, you kind of think about, you know, how, when the mobster, when a mobster finally dies in one of those films and, you know, I kind of think about, you know, how college coaches go to, and I think maybe the best death the mobster could have possible death a mobster could have had in one of those was when Vito Corleone in the first Godfather oh, yeah. drops dead, falling yeah. into his tomato in, plant in his, in his garden. Yeah, in his garden. Grandson's got the spray can. He's shooting either water or DDT at his backside. <laughs> yeah. And as he's hitting the ground, he's thinking everything I built is a, is at its most vulnerable at the moment, at this moment, yeah, that tenuous, I could yeah. lose it. We could lose this all if things don't go to plan and I have no influence on it whatsoever anymore. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Mike Krzyzewski walking off that final four court, losing to Carolina yeah. and almost having the same thought of at the end of the run, you know, yeah, I'm going out on my own terms, but this may not work out all that well. And sure. You know, and I'm not going to have the ability to come in and basically save it. Maybe I can, maybe I can do a Dean Smith, but I'm thinking I've got my guy in and it may not, you know, in it, but it's still, there's a lot of question marks. Now there are, there are, and and that, that's your best possible outcome. Yeah. That's that's the good, that's the good side. Yeah. The bad and the ugly is, you know, you like Bob Huggins. And that's kind of like when uh, Tommy from Casino, Joe Pesci's character gets (laughs) drug out to that cornfield in newton county yeah. and just beat yeah. with his brother and chucked into a hole that's right yeah yeah in real life tony Splatro, yeah and his brother were uh yeah they were louisville sluggard uh just outside kentland indiana i think which speaking of my father-in-law he can take you he taught at north newton so he you know for years so he could take you by where they where they found those bodies. Oh, did he? Oh, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you got to love the, the Chicago mob at that time. Just treated Northern Indiana like it was their own private little human landfill. I mean, <laughs> even going into our family's ancestral roots, you know, going down to Terre Haute and even into Southern Illinois, you know, that, yeah, that was it was definitely something during those yeah. times. But uh, <laughs> but you, you think about college coaches in particular, you know, being dismissed or being forced out and it kind of reminds you of the Ray Liotta line, the Henry Hill line from Goodfellas, you know, they don't come at you screaming. They come at you as friends. And, and so many times it's a thing where 
you never really, it's really hard to go out on your own terms in this game. And we're going to, as we kind of go into this, it's, it's going to become pretty apparent to folks that it's, this is a hard road to, to, to tow, yeah. hard to get there, maybe harder to stay there. Sure. And that ending doesn't always go the way that you really want it. It's, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's Al McGuire at the end, walking off the national championship in a lifetime broadcast deal. That might be, but that's the one I can think of that, you know, really had that Disney type ending versus exactly. a, yeah, the kind of fairy tale. a Nick Pelleggi, uh Martin Scorsese type of yeah. <laughs> type of bloodbath at the end. So yeah, exactly. That is what it is. So, yeah, no, yeah, that that's true. And it's, it's, you know, the reality, I think with, uh, you know, with talking with fans is that it, it's, it's kind of sort of hard to get fans accustomed to the idea that most, most coaching tenures actually fail. I think it's just hard um, because, you know, when you're, when you're sort of in the middle of a coaching um, search and the, the coaching um, and the, the last coach, you know, usually going out uh, because of some kind of failure, fans definitely are sort of in that mindset of like, okay, this is, you know, this is going to work. And I've, I've got, I've struggled a little bit trying to purge from the brains of fans the idea that you know, and it, you and I have talked about this before. It's that sort of part matrix, part biblical prophecy of framing all new hires as "quote unquote" the chosen one. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, how, how many times you know we you hear when a new coach is hired, the the media or you know on uh, on fan uh, message boards. You'll hear phrases like, you know, I'll be shocked if this guy doesn't dominate this job or this is slam dunk hire. And fans are kind of in that mindset of, you know, he shall deliver us to the promised land. And, but, and, and you can do that at the same time. But you look at you, you again, and we're, we're looking at a chart right now where the numbers are kind of showing us that, you know, that first 61.6% out of the 362 coaches currently in Division One are in their basically their first contract that, you know, zero through four seasons. Yeah. And then another 20.4 are in, have, have kind of found a way to get that, that first extension at five to 10 seasons at 20.4. Mm-hmm. So 80% of this, of, of, of the, of the current pool of active division one coaches, they're, 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 they're on that first, they're, they're, they're on that first or second contract. And when you look at that coach for life, um, that 21 plus season, you know, that, that's where the Izzos reside. Yeah. Um, the guy up in Oakland, who's been up there since 1986, the last remaining guy since the three point line came into play. Wow. Um, he's been there since, you know, for that, that period of time. So no, it's not like the papacy or a Supreme court justice ship where you're a, you know, where, where, where you're, you're getting the job for life, lifetime, you know, appointment, yeah. lifetime appointment, you know, it's yeah. not like, you know, my whole life dedicated, like you're doing the queen here, you know, or, you know, doing the, doing, do, doing the monarch's oath. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, 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 it is an uneasy situation and that job stability in coaching is an oxymoron because at the same time, you're bringing in assistants in and out all the time, directors of basketball operations, yeah. um, uh, recruiting coordinators. Everyone's looking to move up in the world. And and it makes sense because uh, we're just talking about shirts off camera because, you know, we just saw Indiana State play Michigan State, you yeah. know, um, or Mike Lewis at, at Ball State. Ball you State. know, they're pulling down three, 300, 300,000, 350,000 a year. 
that's a really that's a good living by any by by any stretch and especially you know in indiana that's you know you're not doing too badly certainly but when you think that you may only have that for a few years if you're like sure and you're you're looking at the end of the season um and someone calls calling saying i'm going to pay you three or four times the money to do what you're doing and you're what 50 years old it makes perfect sense why you would say i'm going to pack up and head to a power five or a high major type program get out of the valley and maybe look to secure a financial you know financial success for myself or financial security and success for myself and my you know in, in the future um because then you know because you may only have a few years where that earning potential is going to be there and exactly. it's a question of is 4 million 5 million over the course of 4 years better than 1.2 and and these guys know the math they know that they may only get one shot two shots to to jump up and when that call comes, they're going to take it seriously. Yeah, exactly. And, and and the question is, it's kind of getting there because you're not really sure what's happened at the job before. You you probably have it. And again, these guys talk. I mean, you know, assistants are great with sharing back and forth. They develop a network. Head coaches develop yeah. a network. There's a lot really, of chatter out there. <laughs> at, and who else knows knows the situation better than another coach um, in so many ways? And somebody outside your program that you can, you know, go play golf with, you know, sort of thing. The the, the few times you can get away to do that sort of thing. And the, the assistants also know and the, DB, uh, the DBOs know and the, the grad assistants and all these individuals know that they can be working with each other at some point in the future, not always working against each other. So you may have a pretty good idea of what's happened. But, you know, when you're talking about what gets the convening of the College of the Cardinals at a college program started with uh, with a guy on his way out, what, you know, you, 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 you guys are kind of keeping their eyes, eyes peeled. And most of them, they'll have agents. They're 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 sending messages. But yeah. it, it, there there is this 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 thing that, you know, you're not really sure what you're kind of getting into. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you think about like coaches, you know, they're, they're human beings too. I mean, they have, you know, sort of the same financial pressures and, um, and expectations that anyone, you know, that works, let's say like in the, in the corporate world. I mean, the uh, lifestyle of an assistant in, in college basketball, when you're in your twenties and maybe into your thirties, it's not easy. I mean, you're just, you're going to AU tournaments constantly. You're, you know, you're at a game on Tuesday night and then you're almost immediately going on a, maybe a flight or a long drive somewhere to watch a kid and it's like high school game the next day and then coming back. And yeah, there's just not a lot of home time. And so I think just from a, even just like a personal family standpoint, you get to your forties and fifties as a coach and you feel like, all right, I've kind of earned, I've punched my ticket for, uh, you know, in this, uh, in this profession. Now I want to get the payoff. And so getting some kind of like financial stability and, um, basically what you would expect any sort of like sub director at a corporation finally getting his first directorship, um, you know, opportunity is like, yep, I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the chance. You know, if I have to move the family, you know, a thousand miles away to a completely different environment, it's going to be worth it because, you know, I've earned this. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really no different for coaching than you see like in any other, you know, facet of, uh, a professional life. True. True. And, 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 and again, it's, it's also one, but again, you're, you're working without a safety net. Um, and it's, and, and basically losing 
losing games is your is your biggest cause for things not working out. But um you're you know, and it used to be recruiting scandals, but I think those with NIL, the transfer portal, and the last run of this that we had with the FBI probe, I don't really see those popping up as much, but you know, you're a few players acting out away and mishandling that situation. Um, you could be media relations or something that happens in your personal life that, 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 that catches you in a position where, and especially if you're, if you're not as successful as you could be or should be, or have been, you find yourself pretty quickly in a position where your, your, your job is very tenuous. And then at that point, your athletic director is asking some real questions and again, we've seen this before where um, now all of a sudden you get called in, they come at you as friends, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. And <laughs> now the College of the Cardinals is convened. And unlike, you know, like when we were at IU, I mean, your last year around that time, I would just left and I was living, still living, you know, when, you know, back in Columbus and coming back for it. It doesn't always look like the Bob Knight fire. It always looked like a third world coup that first night yeah. <laughs> or the second, third. Oh, yeah. I remember I was driving around. But you definitely have this thing where all of a sudden the the fan base has already been kind of working themselves into a tizzy about whether to stay or go. And you're already, you know, you see on the message board some names being floated. But now at this point, everyone's looking for white smoke. Who are you going to bring in at that point? And I mean, like I remember with, you know, Kelvin Sampson steps down from the job in the, you know, in the middle of the season, his last year, they knew the program needed somebody to come in and, and really kind of fix the public relations. Um, and a lot of, you know, player, whether it was team conduct or whether it was just kind of people's feelings towards the program. And they found a guy that basically took the job and was going to give it 110% of his, what seemed to be inexhaustible energy. Yeah. And do it in a way like he was running for governor for the, for his tenure at IU and Tom yeah. Crean. Yeah, he, he Tom Crean has very good politicking skills. I'll, I will say that. Saw that guy walk in. His kids playing basketball. One of the rare times he was able to see his kid actually play. He's in Floyd's Knobs, Indiana, at a sixth grade AAU tournament. I swear, Mike. And usually, college coaches walk in, or even high school coaches, they'll walk in and they're going to find the the furthest corner from humans because they're there to watch their kid play. They've been texting kids, trying to keep them away from Fortnite, you know, trying to compete with Fortnite to try to get them to, you know, say, hey, do you want to come to my institution? Yeah. And and they're they're there. They've had their cleansing drive, but he's there and he, he glad handed everybody in the room, which is great to, to see. But it didn't matter if they had a Kentucky sweatshirt or a Louisville T-shirt on or or a Purdue hat. He's just talking to him about IU basketball. And he's just an ambassador, you know, that full on ambassador of the program. And that showed in his first few recruiting classes, he gets what we would say was would be high level success with uh, two sweet 16s, yeah. take the watch shot, an iconic moment, as well as, you know, a number one AP team. Mm -hmm. And then things start appearing to fall off a bit. Yeah. Yeah, the wheels kind of fell off in that, that post-2013. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, got one more Big Ten title in a Sweet 16. And then the next, you know, the next year, you know, had a few good outings, some really, and, and a really bad one. And then yeah. the team just stopped winning. And I remember in the, at the early stages that I saw empty seats at Assembly Hall and I talked to you 
And we had the conversation about, well, just what is, you know, what's IU going to do? Yeah. You know, because I don't see them firing a guy that's one year removed from a Big Ten title and a Sweet 16 berth. And I think you had the answer, right? Yeah. Like, I think we is that where we're discussing uh, the recruiting at that time? And, and the projections on it and looking yeah. at, you know, talent and. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was pretty bad back then. Yeah. Yeah, the that was the what 2017 class, and that was um, yeah, that was one that was just loaded up in the state of Indiana. You had like Paul Scruggs, uh, Chris Wilkes, uh, Jackson Jr. Like, there, I think there were f- like five top 50 recruits in the state of Indiana, which was like you know a high at that time. You know, in either direction, like you know five or six years, um, and Cream was basically you know not in on any of those guys, you know, seriously. I mean, it got a little bit, he got slightly deep with Wilkes, but he was apparently always like infatuated with UCLA. And yeah, Cre- I remember Crean offered 19 of the top um, 50 recruits in that particular class. And he got none of them. So he had literally zero traction. So, and I, I've always observed that that's usually, you know, there's this like, when coaches sort of like fail, there's like this cascading of fails. Like, you know, they, they lose the fans and then they'll lose the media and then the recruits yeah. notice. And then once yeah. the recruits notice, then they start, you know, bailing on the coach. And then once, once the athletic director sees that the recruits have bailed uh, on that particular coach in that, uh, at that particular school, that's usually sort of like the last straw for ADs. It's like, okay, there's just no way of digging out of this. And I think at that time, in that middle of that IU season, when we talked, I, think i did i remember that conversation saying yeah there's just there's just no uh he's just not gonna be able to dig himself out of this hole it's way too deep in terms of what he's got and even the potential of what he's got coming in and and things have gotten to a point where iu actually turns down an nit home game to force them to go down to georgia tech yeah. and at that point writing's on the wall so guess what the college of the cardinals meets again and the conversations are happening, you know, private, public, all across the board, speculation who's next. And then the white smoke shows up and here's Archie Miller coming into play. And Archie Miller, much like Tom Crean, had had a, had a really good coaching resume, was looking to move up in the world. Um, I would say that at the time when IU hired Archie, he was the number probably the number one top choice for just about anybody. Well, as media uh, list he was, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just this is it. This is the guy. And again, we go back to the, well, coach for life. Here we go. He's a young dude. He's going to bring hard nosed defense and, 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 and he's going to do inside out inside the state and then outside the state recruiting and things again, from a recruiting standpoint early on took, you know, he filled a lot of gaps that, that Crean had, especially with, you know, picking up some size. Um, although, what eventually killed him was, you know, not being, and then also, you know, was not being able to get as many guards other than Rob Finnessy and Romeo Langford in the first year and then Armand Franklin in year, year two. Yeah. yeah. You start looking at that, those results. And, you know, that first, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the first couple games that Archie had in particular that, 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 that caused some problems. But the first one, you, particularly. The first one, yeah, March on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, speaking of. Um, yeah. I, I would I would say that, you know, by the time the team hit a losing streak and then the recruiting fell apart soon after, and then once again, prime targets, recruiting targets aren't coming, and the team hits the skids in year four, things 
it it became time for IU to once again bring everybody back together. Yeah. You know, and they went in an entirely different direction by taking a guy with no college experience but an incredible IU pedigree and a 20 plus year career coaching in the National Basketball Association. And at that level it changed I think, you know, I think IU kind of said we got to go in a totally different direction much like Michigan did when they replaced John Beeline. Much like Louisville did when they replaced Kenny Payne, much like uh, or when they brought Kenny Payne in, uh, much like Memphis did when they brought in uh, Anthony Hardaway, you know, you kind of look at you know that that now it's like maybe in some respects that coaching available pool of candidates may have even may may have even been expanded a little more, and you know, so that's I think a question that as we've been looking at this over the years, you know, we're gonna you know we're gonna continue to look at and kind of see where the trend goes. But from a foundational standpoint, it's something that, you know, there's definitely some patterns that we're going to get into. Yeah, exactly. And so when we come back, we're going to look at what it's like when a program actually lands its guy. Great. Stay tuned on the Back Home Network. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to X's and Joe's. I'm Mike Weemouth, joined by Coach Bob Motes. So, Bob, let's talk about coaching hires and honeymoons. Can you I've, define can you define what the honeymoon is before we start talking about what it's going to look like, you know, early on if you if you think about getting needing a divorce lawyer? Exactly. Yeah, um yeah, it's it's funny and you we've talked about this before like honeymoon when you use it in a sports context, everyone knows what you're talking about when you use it. But no one can define it. Like if you ask somebody, can you define exactly what a honeymoon is and people like struggles like, "Oh, well, uh <laughs> So yeah, we so I actually did sit down at one point and just try to like think out like okay, what does it actually mean? Like what? How does it functionally work? Is probably the better way to think of it. Like how does it actually like? Can you distinguish when a honeymoon is happening and when it is not happening? So, so I I defined it as the the period of time at the start of uh, a coach's tenure when fans, recruits, media, athletic directors don't hold a coach's win loss record against them. It's and it's a and there's no set duration for it. I mean, it's I, I say sort of generically, it lasts typically, typically three years, but it can certainly dry up much faster, and sometimes it can extend a little bit based upon like a school circumstances, and maybe sometimes even what happened at the last regime. If uh, if the media and fans and AD think that a coach just needs more time to build a, co- a program up, uh, probably in, in thinking about the honeymoon. I've always said that the most critical element of it is it it provides a brief window for your school to recruit players that are often out of reach for the team for, you know, teams with or win loss record. It's, 
I, you know, I, I, I compare it to those old Nintendo games where your character, you know, grabs a boosting relic and for like, you know, 20 seconds, they're three times as fast or, you know, they're indestructible. Mm-hmm. So you get to go on this quick rampage before returning back to normal. And that's, I think, the way to think about the uh, the honeymoon is that it is, a, it is a brief period of time where you basically power up above your circumstances, where recruits will listen to you, um, whereas, you know, outside of the honeymoon with your record, they would not listen to you. So it is a, uh, you know, for 36 months, you really do have this opportunity to ramp up as much talent as you possibly can, because again, it doesn't last. And that's where coaches so often get into trouble is that once the honeymoon elapses, they're simply not a position to maintain any level of uh, program momentum, wins and losses, recruiting, uh, roster construction, just they, they just simply run out of gas. The certain, the, the coaches that don't do well during the honeymoon versus the coaches that do really kill it during the honeymoon are the ones that sort of like shoot off, you know, um, on their own, on their own power. And, and one of the, I mean, guys, one of the early tells is we look at, you know, when we look at uh, a new hire or even a guy has been there a year or two or, you know, who he's got around him as assistant coaches, um, who's, who, who have they brought in and, uh, like the Kenya Hunter situation in Indiana is fairly unique because usually when the head guy goes, everyone's got, you know, everyone's called their realtor. Yeah. They always um, bolt out of there <laughs> and secretary too, for that matter. It's, it's not, you're, you're not really looking it. It's, it's a, it's like a presidential transition in that situation. Um, but you, you, I, I always say a good warning sign. Um, I think is when, you know, you look at assistance and maybe after that first year, they make a bunch of moves. Mm-hmm. One move is understandable usually. I mean, you can see it because, again, guys are looking to move up or sometimes you just don't get a fit that works. But if you're looking at those first couple, three years and you're seeing multiple moves in and out of the program, um, I think we saw that under Mike Davis um, a lot where it's just guys just, okay, we, we got to go. Uh, we can't, you know, and or you're kind of lo- wondering, it's like, well, where, you know, does this guy actually have the contacts that 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 are needed to win at the level that this coach is at? Yeah. Um, those are those are some questions that we kind of look at too, sure. and you know, there's always a you know good good moves like you know when Jawan Howard takes over at Michigan and brings in Phil Mortelli to, to to help him on the bench, you know, because to learn kind of the college game and how to manage and, and assist the program. Yeah. So or, I mean, Thad, or Thad coming in and helping with uh, help Woody with some things. That yeah, just and yeah, those are those are interesting moves that you know are made as well, especially to kind of help you know. I want to call them training wheels by any stretch of the imagination, but I would definitely call it a support into inside the program that if you have a question, you got a guy down the hall. And if it doesn't work, then we at least covered ourselves to say, we've given this guy everything we, that he's needed as well as, you know, again, a new guy can maybe come in and also look at the pool of money that's being offered to assistants and be able to bump it up saying, look, listen, you made a, a sizable financial commitment in me. You look at my contract and my buyout, What's another 300, 400, 500 grand at this point? Because if we do this right, you're going to make that back tenfold, minimally tenfold. Yeah. And, you know, the the market for recruiting assistants that are good at recruiting is is always uh, competitive. I mean, the, the, the amount of money you see it like in college football, too, you see like the... The, the inflation for those top end like uh, D coordinators at like Georgia and Alabama or the offensive coordinators at you know Oklahoma or USC I mean they're just just 
completely going off the charts at the, that particular strata of, uh, of games. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting. Yeah. And talking about like assistance, you know, I, the thing I was always interested in is sort of the geographical changes that take place. You, you think about how like one, uh, one regime goes out with the, the, the prior coach and the assistance, the assistance that the, that the with the prior coach would usually have like a particular like geographical area that they covered. You think mm-hmm. like Tom Ostrom with Indiana, you know, he was like focused more on like Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. And then suddenly you bring in an other lead assistant like Kenya Hunter, and he's more of like a, an I-95 guy. You know, he's like uh the DMV down, you know, through um through to the south and and some parts north, you know, into uh like you know New York, New Jersey. And and then you get someone like um, uh, Yeah, Coach Yeah, and he's you know more of like a Georgia guy, and so he's more of like you know, across South, you know, like um, you know Georgia, Florida, basically the SEC territory. So that's always an interesting dynamic too, is that you suddenly see with um, with the new batch of assistants a completely different coaching or a recruiting map for that particular staff. I've always said that you know with ad's they are typically renting the rolodex of the incoming staff Mm -hmm. is that you know you may have been working all these different programs but now we're basically renting all of your connections that you have you know with aau with coaches in a particular you know high schools and these particular hotbeds you know in recruiting so yeah it's it's you're completely changing up where you can hunt for recruits with the change in the uh, uh, with the staff that you bring in, and not just the head coach, because head coach obviously has their own connections, but the mm-hmm. assistants especially that's like so critical. And I think it's something fans don't really pay enough attention to when you know they're they're talking about okay, well we want to recruit you know in this area and that area. You have to really ask, okay, is your assistant really sort of at the top end of uh, sort of like the callback list for the coaches in that area, or they're kind of maybe more in the middle or bottom? So, right. so that that's always an interesting dynamic, I think. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. So, we talk about getting kids. Then you went over the fans, and you're looking at as we're looking at this first chart. You know, I think. For so many of these guys, you know, and we we're looking at Jay Wright, Billy Donovan, and Ben Howland, at U, who was at UCLA in the in the in the two thousands. You know, the yeah. first the first decade of the two thousands. Yeah. Um, one of the big things, and you look at both Wright, Jay Wright in particular, when you think about him, his style of play is inc- was incredibly attractive to kids. I would say Billy Donovan was the same way. I think Howland, you know, too. I mean, I think all three of them can can point to that. But I mean, coaches at every level look at what Jay Wright's done with, you know, kind of his four out and his, you know, sort of free flow, his movement based offense with that. Yeah. You know, he's the guy that teaches you when you, you're, you're never more open than when you catch the ball. Yeah. And, you know, so the expectation is if you're open and you catch it, shoot it, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're in your range. And so, yeah, that clearly, you know, it doesn't matter what the first couple of years are that clearly yeah. works. And so as you're working at this sort of slay early in recruiting, you know, you can, you know, you can get away with that message. So yeah, uh, we can talk a little bit about as we're looking at this, at this sure, slide with these. Three. Sure. Yeah. And also, you know, just as a note for our audio only listeners, uh, you know, Bob and I are going through some, um, um, some slides here. And so we'll, we'll, we'll go through and explain exactly like what we're looking at. But uh, if you ever want to check out uh, on YouTube, uh, 
um, what we're uh, what we're displaying here. That it'll be there, and we'll also be dropping this in the show notes. But we will explain these, you know, as we go through them. Um, and these examples I put up: uh, Jay Wright, Billy Donovan, and Ben Howland, as and what their early recruiting uh, success looked like. The common theme with uh, so many of these uh, coaches is that uh, they are recruiting at a very high level despite very poor win-loss records, but they're grabbing recruits that otherwise would be customarily out of range for uh, for a program that has you know that that little success at the time. And again, that's the benefit of the honeymoon. The honeymoon in, does not totally erase exactly what your program's uh, win-loss record is, but it certainly mitigates uh, the effect that it has on on your capacity to recruit high-end recruits. So if you look at Jay Wright's uh, case here, like two NIT seasons at the very beginning of his tenure, but he still recruited, um, in this case, uh, let's see, six top uh, 70 kids, Jason Frazier, Alan Ray, Chris Sumter, uh, Will Sheridan, Randy Foy, Mike Nardi, Billy Donovan. Same thing in NIT season at the very beginning of his tenure, uh, was able to recruit four top 75 guys, including Mike Miller, Ted DePay, and uh, Udonis Haslam. Ben Howland was at 11 and 17 in year one, but still recruited uh, four top 60 kids, including Trevor Zira um, and uh, Jordan Farmar. So that's a very common um, pattern that you do notice when you do this kind of research is that you see coaches went recruiting way above their circumstances. You know, there was a time, I think, early on when I started to do this research and I was like sharing some of this online, you would get people that would like fire back saying that, well, no, actually, when coaches come in, they simply can't really get good recruits that they have to earn them. So they have to win a little bit and then they'll get some better recruits. And then those better recruits will help them win a little bit. And so there's always been this sort of counter theory of this stepping stone um, concept that you slowly build up, but you have to win first before you get the recruits. But if you look sort of at a macro level through history of the coaches, especially the ones that really like made it, made it like, you know, went to final fours and won national championships. There's a consistent pattern of them recruiting first and then winning thereafter. So that's uh, sort of what we're showing here on this, uh, in this first slide. And the, uh, you know, there's the, we talk about, you know, and, and just so we are clear there are outliers that do exist uh, to this pattern. Um, I think John Beeline and Scott Drew are like the first two I usually typically bring up. Uh, not that they didn't have to get better recruits before they won, but with them, it was much more a case of there was a, a definite delay uh, in the time frame at which they started recruiting uh, really well. In most cases that we're discussing here, the recruiting like spiked around like your cycle two or cycle three, basically that you're ramping up and getting really good uh, recruits by year four in the tenure. Uh, those cases with um, uh, with Drew and Beeline, they really only spiked in recruiting about like years four and five, and then had better years in like year, in seasons like six, seven, and eight. So. So that's just, you know, so so that we're being completely transparent that this is not a 100% guarantee of, you know, how these patterns develop. It is a very heavily skewed uh, pattern towards recruiting first and then winning thereafter. Well, and, and 
you 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 look at the the whole idea that you know, okay, so by that year three, year four, we're going to talk about this a little later. Now, at the same time, a bunch of other programs, many of whom could be in your conference, many of them could be in your region, they've now may have made a decision at their head coaching position. And when you, again, talking that two-thirds, almost two-thirds of the profession right now are in that first contract, well, as you're getting towards the end of your first contract, a whole slew of programs have now replaced their head guy. And now they're buying a honeymoon. So at this point, you're wanting to see some results and you kind of have to strike, you have to strike early on the recruiting trail so you can build your brand with recruits, including getting the the proper game footage that you can show them. Well, it's like, hey, well, we're going to change the way we play here at, at, uh, at, at Basketball U, you know, and, and the kid looks at you and says, well, why haven't you? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's it's negative recruiting doesn't necessarily work unless you actually have a foundation from which to build. Yeah, and, exactly. And if the perception of your program is that you know, well, we want to get out and run. Well, you're 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 at sixty one possessions a game, and my AAU coach and my dad and Uncle Bill and all these people have sat down and told me that no, no, they're they're basically sludging along here. Yeah, um, yeah that that is interesting. Yeah, no, that that's kind of an interesting concept if you think about it i i think with with fans there's always a worry about winning early on right it's always like oh god you know the recruits they see us we're only winning you know uh you know 13 15 16 games in years you know one and two the reality and, and they get worried that that is going to have adverse impact on on recruiting the winning part is not necessarily the biggest variable. I mean, it helps to win, obviously, but it's it's certainly not as nearly as important as what you say is that you're trying to avoid having those adverse narratives setting in about having a boring offense or having an offense that doesn't um, maximize you know the player's capabilities. And so, it's it's always what I say that. With negative recruiting or just negative perception of your program within the context of recruiting, that only can happen if you're screwing up. If you're doing well, then there's really not much material to be used against you. So it's it's always the case that if things are going well, the coach can go to recruits and tell their version of the narrative about their program, and that's what the kids will believe. If you're screwing up, then it's your rivals that will be telling your this narrative about your program. And that's what the kids will believe. And so the best advice for coaches is that even if you're not winning a lot early on, just don't be an absolute train wreck. Just be at least semi-functional, be at least semi-interesting to watch and make sure at least that the kids have some degree of capacity to, you know, thrive within your offense, especially on offense. Cause that's always what a lot of kids are watching. And, and never underestimate the mindset of an 18 year old kid who's, who would say to themselves, well, you know what? They may be losing now, but if I get there, we'll start winning. I'll yeah. guarantee it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I, I, I was 18 too. Remember we were going to take over the world, Mike. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, it's <laughs> the innocence of youth, of course. Uh, yes. So, so yeah, this, so this slide we just uh, threw up here and uh, what we're doing in this case is we're, we're showing sort of the, the split between the coaches that make it uh, versus those that don't. And when we say make it, we 
in this context, we're talking about making a lease to their first extension. And so on the, the left-hand side here, we have Jay Wright and his um, year four roster versus Chris Mack at Louisville in his year four roster. Wright has, in year four, he's got, let's see, seven top 75 kids, and Chris Mack has just three. So more than a two-to-one variance in terms of uh, top-end talent. And obviously, Chris Mack, when he was coming to Louisville, there's great, great expectations for him to have a J, you know, a Louisville or sorry, a um, a Villanova level uh, roster as uh, as Jay Wright had. And that's also, you know, just another sort of like pullback out a little bit to sort of these larger concepts of the uh, of the research. The historical data on this is like pretty straightforward. There are very few cases of coaches making it long term at a school without substantial early recruiting success. I mean, make it to an extension with only modest early recruiting success is like it's like the Kobe Kobayashi Maru for coaching hires. It's just no a, win, no win <laughs> scenario from Star Trek Two guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's the no I'm win not even a Star Trek guy, but <laughs> even I know what that one is. So. <laughs> But yeah, it's just a very hard mountain to climb without talent. And, and when you look at, if you do so like what we're doing here, taking a look at these you know, sort of paired comparisons of coaches that made it versus those that didn't, the, one of the most common, um, uh, one, of the, one of the most common things you will see is exactly this. There's almost invariably some kind of roster. Um, a comparison that is just not advantageous for the one that gets fired. In this case, again, Chris Mack let go after four years, and he had half the talent that uh, Jay Wright had in terms of upper-tier talent. And then also just running through and just, you know, to demonstrate again this example, uh, this is, uh, we're showing Billy Donovan and his year four roster versus Archie Miller. Um Donovan had, let's see, uh, one, two, six top 75 kids, and uh, Archie Miller just had uh, three, and Trace Jackson Davis, Jerome Hunter, and Christian Lander. So again, coach on the left uh, made it, had great success, because they loaded up on talent early on in the honeymoon. They were able to uh, hit on a high a high number of uh, upper-tier recruits during the honeymoon, and by the time they got to year four, when the honeymoon was elapsing, they were, you know, had all the momentum they needed to continue outside the honeymoon. Whereas Archie Miller came to year four and was basically out of gas. He didn't have the talent nearly to uh, to be able to survive, uh, you know, especially with a program like Indiana and the expect- expectations that you have at a school like that. Right. And it should be added that, you know, Lander really didn't play a whole heck of a lot his first, his, his two years at Indiana. Yeah. Hunter, I don't think ever started. So. Yeah, no, Exactly. And so, yeah, that's, and it's, again, you, you know, it's, we, we show you just a few of these examples, but uh, this is something that is just very consistent. I mean, uh, Bob Knight, you think about him, he landed, you know, May, Buckner, Benson, Abernathy, Wilkerson in those first two cycles. Coach K and, was, yeah, go ahead. And, 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 and yeah. And I mean, you, you, yeah, you look at those, those early, those, those early programs, but um, I was going to actually say at the same time, you know, early winning can be a problem too, right? That it's not just early losing. Oh, totally. Yeah. That, that expectation goes up to a certain point and all of a sudden, you know, you, you know, Kevin Ollie's cutting down the nuts and he's out of a job a few years later. Mike exactly. Davis goes to a final, 
uh, an NCAA final and yeah, year, year two, year two. Yeah. I mean, you can even make it, you know, um, you know, uh, make a case for, you know, Michigan when, you know, Steve took the program over wins as an assistant coach jumps in and yeah, lands the fab five and by the middle part and part because of the recruiting, you know, because of a recruiting scandal and some other things that popped up, but, never really replicated the same success and kind of gave Michigan the ability to part ways with them. Yeah. And so when you jump up that level early on, it's you, you kind of be able to need to be able to repeat it pretty quickly. If you're, if you're going to do the survival, if you're exactly. going to the survival mode. Yeah. And that's, um, that's something I'm kind of interested in with uh, Kansas state and Missouri right now. Yeah. Around, like what would happen with, with how well those guys jumped in in year one, and had you know twenty five plus win seasons right out of the bat, coming off of you know seasons that were not nearly nearly as good you know by their uh, by their predecessor. So you do wonder what happens once those guys maybe like level out a little bit. Is because you do see that so often is that coaches that come in get hot really fast in years one and two, and then um, you know start declining in years three and four. It's much better. Um, historically speaking, to do the inverse, it's much better to build up and then be in good shape in in year four versus spiking up really fast in years one and two and then declining in years three and four. Because again, mm-hmm. the the effect of the honeymoon is just uh, the being the the effect of the honeymoon at the beginning versus you know the elapsing of the honeymoon is just uh, is tremendous in terms of its impact on recruiting and just perception within the program. Right. Right. So yeah, I think we've covered. Uh, so I think we've really covered the honeymoons pretty well. Um, I think coming up next on the next segment, we'll discuss chip stacks and what coaches have to do to survive long term. So stay tuned on the Back Home Network. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. So we're talking now uh, about what the chip stack looks like and what does your stake look like when you're going in to the game. And um, basically it's the capital you have to work with as a coach. And it's important to remember that not all programs are created equally, that some programs you're going to walk in with in some cases, substantially more chips than you would at maybe the lower tier of your conference because you have tradition, you have facilities, you have kind of a perception that your program is a perennial winner. 
you have good alumni and fan support um, that it kind of allows you to kind of get into the game with more. But at the same time, at a program, and Indiana's definitely, we talk about blue bloods, and we, we've talked about this. Indiana's yeah. the ultimate blue blood. Yeah. If you know the true definition of blue blood, then yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, do you know who we are? It's mm-hmm. it. And, and you can hear that from, you know, kind of Kentucky fans. Well, we're Kentucky or we're Kansas. Um, we're UCLA. Uh, and you look at that, you know, that sort of, that, that sort of lineage. And even if you've fallen on hard times, if you're a Rockefeller and you're living under a bridge, you're still a Rockefeller. And even, you know, you, you know, you may still have your, 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 your card for the daughters of the, or sons of the American revolution and your, and, and years of the social register that's sitting there, even though there's not a whole lot of money, not a lot of money that's left in, left, left in the bank account, but dang it, you're still, you're still somebody. Yes, exactly. Your, your porcelain club ring, it still shines just as well as it did 20 years ago. So (laughs) true that. And, and so, but that, but those types of programs, you're at a higher risk even though there's potentially a higher reward. And and there is a lot for coaches to look at that and say, you know, if you're a Tom Crean and Archie Miller, um, definitely Bill Self leaves leaves Illinois, jumps over to Kansas. Um, sure. Roy Williams, you know, they take a risk on him to, to take him out to Kansas to begin with. Uh, you know, uh, why Billy Gillespie goes to Kentucky and then John Calipari leaves a national finalist team to go replace him. Well, I can not only can I win there, but I can win parentally there. It's not going to be yeah. the, the 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 slog isn't going to be as hard. Yeah. Now you may end up at a place like you know, like Scott Drew did at Baylor, where he inherited an entire disaster situation. Yeah. And you know, felonies don't always <laughs> bode well. Like yeah. when the most, players were committing murder. <laughs> yeah, m- most coaches don't come in, and the word murder is. Of the prior, <laughs> no, it's part no. of the reconciliation process, and yeah. so yeah, he got, got really entrepreneurial and basically said, "I can take this and make this into something," and has definitely done that. Yeah. Um, but you also have the um, you know situations like Purdue would have which have a proud tradition as well, and you know can yeah. can bring you know have have had incredible stability at the head coaching position since yeah. since before the shot clock yeah. um, was instituted. Um, and you you know that, but at the same time, it's like you know. So maybe your chip stacks at some of those programs may be a little lighter, but the expectation is not necessarily lower. But it's not going to get you killed as fast. You're not at the final table at the World Series of Poker per se. Yeah, you're maybe able to kind of work up, and so some earlier or some mistakes may not absolutely kill you. Yeah, and you can kind of get that extension, you know, the next few extension, and you can maybe l- not just linger on, but be very successful at what you do and build a winner in those areas. Yeah, exactly. And since you know we're 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 talking about this concept, and and because this, like the honeymoon, and 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 some of the other concepts we'll be talking about in in future episodes, we, we will define these as we go. And so, at least in this context, as Bob said, the chip stack it, it, for an for a uh, a basic definition, it's just a figurative bank of capital, political capital, that coaches start each tenure with that rises and falls based upon for performance. And so, like Bob said, as, as you're winning games, you know, you're spiking up, losing and having like embarrassing outcomes, then they go down. So, and so, yeah, I think, Bob, you and I have talked about like what actually, what are like the most common things that cause the chip stack to rise and fall? 
I think we had identified, you know, not only just from what we look at, but also there's some research that's been done on this, you know, for both college football and basketball. So we've kind of looked at some of those too. Um, number one, we saw losing too much relative to program, ex program expectations. And so, again, program expectations being the key point. You can lose at Northwestern more than you can at, let's say, even Illinois. Uh, you can lose more at Notre Dame versus Indiana in terms of you know basketball. There's just going to be a different sort of minimum standards in terms of uh, what is going to be applied to the coach's expectation in terms of, of their output. Um, ugly losses. We talked about Archie Miller earlier. We hinted at it. It you yes, know first game first, one. first out, game out out of the shoot. <laughs> get you, you get you just roasted by Indiana State um, at home. At home. Mm -hmm. Defensive coach, they shoot lights out from three. Yeah, they had and they had some other some successes, but they also the same thing when Indiana Purdue Fort Wayne and now Purdue Fort Wayne came into town. They yeah. did the exact same thing. And fans are kind of thinking twice of, are we sure we made the right call? And yeah. the casual fan definitely, and, you know, they look at some of the guys that may, you know, well, this guy follows it more closely. Well, Archie Miller is one of the top guys. you got to give him time to get his recruits in. Yeah. But even then, you're still in the back head going, yeah, but you're not supposed to lose 20-plus points to Indiana State on your home floor in your in your inaugural game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, that was bad. I mean, that's one of those that just like, you know, early on, even though it is the honeymoon, technically, that's one of those that just people put it in their back of their um, memory banks and pull out once the honeymoon's over when they're really PO'd with the coach. And you remember uh, towards the end mm -hmm. when people are sort of enumerating all of the, the reasons to get rid of Archie Miller, oftentimes, invariably, someone would say, and that damn Indiana State loss at the very <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, you remember that? It, at that point, it, it, when that happened, it, it kind of reminds you of the Hunter S. Thompson short story that we both are very familiar with. Oh, the honeymoon. Uh, the, the, where where the, the, the couple takes a cruise, and I think the husband ends up being chucked overboard by the captain overboard. and his wife, yeah. Who, yeah. who then get together in the middle of the, yeah. of the boat, and you're going, oh. It's like, yeah. that's that's really funny. But it's kind yeah. of dark, but... You know, you're kind of thinking that if your honeymoon phase, you're all, your your wife's already dialing up a divorce lawyer, you're you're not you're, you're things probably and yeah. yeah, you're not getting off to the best of starts to say the least. Yeah, you yeah. might want to keep the receipts on those uh, wedding presents. Exactly. Yeah, but, he, and, he, yeah. Go ahead. But a similar story, like Billy Don, uh, Billy Gillespie at, at Kentucky, and some of his issues that he had coming in wasn't losing a whole lot. Right. But by Kentucky standards, you know, replacing Tubby Smith, again, another example, a guy who won early yeah. and things just didn't go like the fan base wanted. But when the fan base says things like, well, the guy just doesn't get us. He just doesn't get who we are. Right. And they can find something, anything to get you out the door. Yeah. Um, that That's that sort of thing where those losses do add up a little bit. Sure. You go in and you win thirty-two games, and you get caught in your RV with a case of beer and a couple girls from the you know, from from the you know, from the opposing school. Yeah, you're not exactly forgiven, but yeah. you might you might keep your job. But if you're at twenty and ten in that type of program, that might be the time for the program to say, mm, yeah. maybe maybe we have a character issue, as it's yeah. called. 
Exactly. Yeah, the the sum total of the variables uh, are working against you in those cases, if you, yeah. especially if your records that where <laughs> where he had it at. Yeah. 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 I was, I was also thinking about. Um, yeah, like with Archie, especially, and it just kind of brought up another one: losing to rivals. Huge. That is always a massive one, and yeah, that's another one you find consistently on the research is that. Um, losing to rivals and not just losing to them directly head to head, but underperforming relative to your rivals is just an absolute killer for, uh, for any coaching staff. And you're thinking of in the Indiana case with Archie Miller, remember that Bob Knight reunion game yeah. at home versus Watershed. Purdue. Yeah. I, I, Watershed. I, I'm a, I think I even text, I texted you like as, as soon as that game was over and I said, yeah, that was an Enron grade collapse in Archie's uh, stock value in his, in his chip stack. It's like, and at that point you and I are having the conversation. So what can he do to pull it out? And, you know, we're coming up with ideas, but at the same time, it's like, well, at that point your prognosis isn't good. You know, at, at this point you're, you're, yeah. You know, at that at that point, you're shoving all in on certain things and hoping that Trey Kaufman run decides he's going to come. Yeah, and or if you Mason get that, Miller, if not him, Mason Miller. Yeah, those <laughs> that whole process of well, we got oh, if he can just get the next class, you know, it's yeah. got you know, if he can just figure that part out, yeah. he's made some changes on the staff, some things can go differently. But yeah, it's not yeah th- those 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 the, those losses and yeah with Kentucky as well. You know, you start looking. Yeah. For Miller, that was a huge problem yeah. down the stretch. Yeah, and you you mentioned the other the other big one whipping on high end high high attention recruits, especially like to in, to either in state rivals or conference rivals. That's the other big one that just absolutely destroys your chip stack. The kid actually picked Purdue and took the red shirt versus playing, but versus basically starting for starting us. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no that, <laughs> and yeah, we all remember that night on. Uh, uh, in the uh, in the interwebs was uh, was absolutely it's almost like a psych experiment uh, for sports psychology just <laughs> unfolding by the minute when Kaufman Rand uh, popped for Purdue. It it'll be it'll be uh, the, the, a story we'll do later. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that will be another one. Yeah, and I, it was interesting. We we're thinking about um, and we and we've talked about this before. You remember night at the end of that last like what six years of his uh tenure he was four or so he was five and 14 combined versus uh, kentucky and purdue yeah and we remember because we're in school around that time and that was just constantly like the the thing that you could tell the fans was just getting absolutely drained on was oh god he's we're losing. To, we're not only losing head to head versus them, but you know Kentucky's got two national championships. Purdue has a three peat for the Big Ten title, and we're just kind of like you know stuck in this mm-hmm. in this uh, sort of like middle zone. Yep. Yeah, and that's in spite of having this. Yeah, exactly. Granted, yeah, twenty years earlier, but still, yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about, you know, in in terms of you know the the escaping the honeymoon period and, and going into um, the period thereafter, when we're talking about like chip stacks and, you know, sort of building up, you know, political capital and what the successful coaches did versus the ones that, you know, uh, were let go early. One thing I want to focus on is the 
sort of the, what I call the the typical shape of a coaching tenure for successful coaches. Uh, in this example, and I put up on the screen again, we'll drip, drop this in the show notes for those listening on the, the pod. Um, we have Bob Knight here looking at his first 10 years at IU based upon winning percentage and also um, some like highlights of, you know, either winning national championships or going to final fours. And the shape that you see uh, in this uh, slide example is basically um, in the first years, the first four, five years of his uh, tenure, the winning percentage is going up basically about every single year. It's a, a nice steady incline towards uh, the, his, uh, the top of his uh, performance in that time, which would have been the 76 of, you know, undefeated championship team. This is typically the shape of you see of coaches, that make it, they will have a a starting point that's usually pretty low in like year one, and they'll slowly build up and typically have some kind of payoff, usually around between years, let's say four to six, is the most common. There's and the payoff does not necessarily have to be a national championship. It's typically some kind of thing that the fans can kind of grab onto and say, ah, this is this is a memorable season. It could be a top five season. It could be a conference championship, maybe two. It could be a final four visit, or for some, it is in fact a national championship. In this case, with Knight, um, he had sort of two peak seasons, um, seventy five and seventy six, with one of them being a, a national championship. He actually had a, a final four in year two, which is a little bit unusual on the the development path uh, for most coaches. Again, most payoffs usually come again usually years around years four or five, but he actually had one in year two. But again, compared to some others that had a really good, let's say, year two and then dropped, he kept uh, ascending. And that's the most important point is that, again, he had the recruits. He had May, Benson, Abernathy, Buckner, Wilkerson, and all those guys. And that's what allowed him to have this uh, sort of upward trajectory. And to sh- and then what yeah. you also notice thereafter is the and other... It com- sh- yeah. should be noted that 60% winning percentages, you're looking at about like 20 and 10, roughly. You yeah, know, 18, 19, 20 wins versus, and, you know, I would even say two years before that national championship, they won an NIT as well Yeah, um, with that crew. So, I mean, you, you, you know, you, you had some moments that was before the 64 team tournament. So things were, things were a little different. So yeah, yeah but you, you do have that regression and then it's a matter of, okay, because your first group has now worked through. Now you have a bunch of younger guys. And it's also, I think, hard to stack classes the way where you can have a perennial winner. Does that make? Would you agree with that, Mike? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's usually because the buildup, your your, the, the payoff itself is almost implicitly involving guys that are probably just there for maybe one more year. Whether it's or whether it's and now it's like you have high capacity portals or maybe like a one and done or like a really good sophomore. But back then it was like okay, you're gonna win your championships once your guys are seniors. In the case with this with Knight and seventy six, yeah, you just had that load of guys that were basically the top of their game as seniors. Scott May walks off the floor and gets replaced by Mike Woodson. Yeah, you know, that exactly. Thing. Yeah, no, and that's the, and that's the the second point you're, you brought up accurately, Bob, is that after you have that first initial run up, the other consistent pattern you see with these coaches is you have a regression. And it's usually immediately after the peak, you have a drop back for maybe a few years. Some for some coaches might be one or two years, but there's almost invariably a drop back. In this case with Knight, you see drops um, down even below uh 
right around almost like a, I think it was like 13, 14 that, uh, that yeah. next year. And then again, the pattern that you see for successful coaches is that they build back up again towards another peak. So you have almost like this sort of camel's camelback sort of like a shape that you know you start to see develop a spike a regression and then a build back up again towards another uh, peak and with the peak that you know night the second peak the night hit was like year 10 which it was his 81 uh championship team with isaiah thomas and all those guys sliding to the next example here in this slide we have uh, billy donovan again same thing Low early success, uh, first two years, even below 50%, then spiking up year three, and by year four, he's already in the final four. Again, looking back on the slide we discussed previously in the last segment, we noted like how much talent he had going into year four. And so you see this example with the, I think it was the six or seven top 70 kids he had, that's what allowed him to have this, you know, this payoff. His decline was, or his regression after his initial peak was a little bit more shallow compared to some other coaches. He kind of stayed up around 70, 75% winning percentage. He dropped back a little bit, I think, in like year eight. But by the time he gets to year um, like nine, 10, 11, he's already back up and he wins back to back championships um, in years t uh, 10, 11. So again, um, this shape is. Uh, it's it does not look exactly the same for everybody, but directionally speaking, this is is a pretty consistent pattern you'll see uh, for coaches that do make it to the uh, to their uh, first extension and beyond. You know, they've kind of become those coaches that Bob referenced in his uh, at, in segment one. The guys that make it, the the two point five percent of coaches that are almost like the emeritus dean that just never leaves uh, their school. In this case, uh, Jay Wright, again, he had a he actually dipped a little bit in his first uh, between years one and two, and then spikes up in year four, has a top, you know, like a top five finish in year five, drops back down again year six and seven, and then by year eight, he's in his first final four, drops back for a few years, and then builds back up into years like 15, 16, 17 towards those uh, national championship teams. And again, you're, you know, that's the, you know you 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 look at that you know that year eleven for 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 Wright he's sub five hundred uh, one of the you know the post his only sub five hundred in that whole run uh, in that run after you know after the buildup but th that you can temper that because you've built up enough of a chip stack where you can absorb that hit yeah you can absorb the loss and that I think is what you know. You know, one bad season may not do it for you. Now, two yeah. or three, we're we're in a different ball game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's, and you almost do have to think about it almost like uh, like a bank account. It is. There's almost uh, there's like an implied amount of goodwill that you build up by having those wins, by getting to final fours in year four. That allows you to have maybe you know a down year or two where the fans will give you the benefit of the doubt. I think Mike Davis really actually kind of benefited from that tremendously. Not only, you know, that he had the benefit of having a pretty good record versus Purdue at that time, but that final four visit and the getting to the final game, I think bought him a lot more slack that allowed him to survive those, you know, those middle years, the 15 and 16 uh, season. 
I think he had like two years in a row as like basically 500 teams and he's still unable to get like that extra year. Whereas I think without that final four visit, I think there's like no chance he would have been fired probably at the end of that second. Uh, well, especially year. considering the the situation that he was in and what he inherited with where the fan base was altogether. Exactly. And, yeah, and that, thinking yeah. And, and, and that, and, and again, that makes a, that makes a huge difference. I mean, kind of Bill Guthridge fits that as well to a certain degree that even though his fat last game was a final four game, Dean said, you're going to take this program for a little while. Yeah. but you're caretaking until we can bring Roy home. Um, yeah. Let's go back That's to Dean good. just yeah, briefly sorry. Sorry about that. because I just wanted to talk quickly about Dean Smith. Again, Dean has a very, it's, it's, it's very strange because he was the one who really kind of ramped up into year six. Mm-hmm. People forget Dean Smith did um, take the job over from a, um, from a legend in Frank McGuire. Yeah. And, when you look at the, the the graph we have up here shows um, the first the first six years where he's around 500 except for one year where he was at 70 percent and year four or I think it was year four was the game where he got dog walked by Wake Forest and he came back yeah, and they had the him road. hanging from a hanging <laughs> from a tree in Chapel Hill yeah. and he's thinking and they're thinking maybe things are going to change you know maybe maybe this isn't the guy. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, Smith, you know, he made some changes offensively, not having a big man. He went into, you know, moved into a, more of a cutting based offense with some worn four action, uh, a version of shuffle that he called basic cut, where he was able to kind of expand what he could do offensively with the guys that he had. And the one after that is legendary. And even yeah. though people said he couldn't win the big one until 1981, and won another one in 93, you're still talking about a guy that for a period of time was the winningest all-time coach in Division One. Exactly. Yeah, and, and what we're looking at here in the examples, this is just years, the early years for Dean. At five Final Four visits, this this is not even the, uh, the, the chart parameters that includes his national championship runs. So this is just, and like what, even legends that have not won you know, the big one, like you said, they're still holding the fan base um, in their in their corner because they are going to Final Fours, because they are like consistently above, you know, 70, 80% winning percentage. Winning the ACC, winning the ACC tournament, getting to the tournament itself, making Sweet 16s. In his case, he's dethroning NC State as the in-state power. That's true. Yeah, exactly. That was a lot of fans that or who are not from like the Tobacco Road area probably don't remember. Yeah, NC State used to be sort of the uh, the heavy in the early ACC until uh, yeah until North Carolina. And remember, in this, and, and Dean yeah. yeah Dean Smith basically sort of like flipped the conference towards uh, Carolina. And in those middle years, also he was contending with John Wooden sitting at UCLA. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yep. And mo- so moving into um, some comparisons. So you know we talked about what what the coaches that succeeded did, you know, in terms of ramping up their, um, ramping up their talent and having like this particular shape of, you know, sort of like upswinging regression and then like still like constantly moving, uh, you know, in a, in a positive direction. If you chart um, side by side, the, uh, the same winning percentages for the coaches that didn't make it, you tend to see the the uh, the contrast. In this example, we have Billy Donovan versus Archie Miller. And again, you see that uh, in this example, Archie actually had a little bit more winning 
early on, especially in his first two years versus uh, Billy Donovan. And then you see and by year three, Donovan is already starting to separate himself from Miller in terms of his winning percentages. He's up at uh, above 70% and Miller's like, you know, down in 60 and, and, and falling. Again, when we, we talk about thinking about the previous slide in the other segment, that variance that you saw by the time you got to year four, Archie had half the, uh, you know, like the top 75, top 80 talent that, uh, that Donovan did. And that is clearly illustrated here in this chart, you know, in terms of what the end result is. You, the coaches that don't get that uh, level of talent when the honeymoon is ending, they take the trajectory that Archie Miller did, which was basically like slide down towards the basement. Whereas the coaches that did get the necessary talent when the honeymoon ends are having what you see with Billy Donovan shape, which is like upswinging. So that's, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that, and of course, you know, if you're an Indiana fan, you live through this. I always tell fans when you're getting, you know, if you're recruiting is stalling the way it did with Archie Miller. You know, he had what it, Towards the end of his tenure, I did a data poll, and he had 31 offers to top 80. Let's see, 31 offers to top 80 guards in his tenure at that time, and he only landed two of them, which is a six percent uh, uh, hit rate on your uh, on your offers. Six percent hit rate on guards at a program with those that kind of expectations for winning—that is almost a guaranteed loser. You're not going to make it. And it's important to note that when you evaluate a recruiting class, you basically need to wait until the kids actually show up to campus before you say this is a yeah. win. This is you know that it's not like oh well we're we're sitting in February. Well, with the way patterns have changed and have evolved and with the transfer portal too, you have to account for the portal also in this conversation, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's one of those things that you kind of like, you have to analyze at a macro level that we see the patterns, but yeah, individually, you certainly do have to sort of like wait and wait and see like, okay, well, maybe this coach is a little bit different. He can, uh, Mm -hmm. he can see things a little bit better than uh, some others. So. But um, that definitely shows when your guy gets extended or not, what the payoff season actually looks like versus the payout season. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Like when I, when I talk to fans about what you, what you hear in like the message boards, when recruiting is starting to decline, I I've always said that, you know, if you're, your team's recruiting stalls and you hear on the message boards, well, we just have to win some more games before we can access those prime recruits. I was like, that coach is not going to survive mm-hmm. just based upon the historical record. Um, not again, not, not in that moment, not dead yet, but uh, exceptions like, exist, but exceptions are exceptions for reasons. They're not they're, exactly. they're, they're We, you know, they're outside the standard deviation of where you want to be. Exactly. Yeah. Like not dead yet, but Fredo with the fishing pole in hand, walking to the dock with with Neary right behind him. Yeah, there's there's Michael. Yeah, and he's just looking over, and there, well, we're, yeah, Fredo hugging Michael, and he's looking over at Neary, and Neary's going, "Yeah, this is the writing's on the wall. I'm going to have to, yeah, it's a, yeah, the AD's looking at the personnel guy and saying, I'm going to have to basically, you know, tell this guy what his uh, what his retirement, you know, what his options are for benefits, send yeah. him his Cobra packet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Mo Green thinking. Yeah, boy, today I think I need a massage today. I need a massage today. What a great, what a great <laughs> idea! You know, I'll, you know. Oh man. And I'm There's looking same thing. Yeah, 
And just looking at another example here, just head-to-head, Jay Wright versus Chris Mack. Again, we saw the the variance between you know what Mack had and what Wright had going into year four in terms of recruiting. And again, you see the same pattern. The coach that got the necessary recruits has upswinging um, results in terms of win-loss, and the, the coach that didn't take advantage of the honeymoon adequately has a downswinging um, results on the win-loss um, tally. So. So yeah, this and, is a the, and the I, consistent I, pattern we we see throughout. Love the love the love the uh, the, the the Chris Mack winning, you know, and that almost eighty percent wins at UL, and then just the the drop where it's a ramp up. So trajectory matters. But honestly, Mike, if you and I, you know, if, when when those hires happen at UL and IU, if you had thought for a minute that both those guys would be out of a job today at both those institutions, we probably would have taken the bet, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just based on their past performances, Xavier and Dayton, and what they were, what what was supposed to be in those situations, and there's definitely different reasons as to why that happened. But at the end of the day, it's there are no sure things in coaching hires. Yeah, interesting. No, nope, it's it's the it's the stuff that uh, you know. It's fascinating, like, you know, how people think at the beginning of a tenure versus at the end of the tenure, like, you know, just the, the variance is just, uh, it's striking. We always kind of look back and I was like, oh man, I, I saw my text of when, you know, this coach was hired. I can't believe I thought of this about this guy that now I'm going on the message board and, you know, <laughs> and ripping. A- ask, asking for him to be, uh, you know, kicked out of town. So yeah, sometimes stuff goes bad, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, again, you know, you know, phone call rings, you're sitting at the diner, you guys supposed to be a made man and all of a sudden. Ah, it didn't work. It yeah, didn't work. Was... And then De Niro smash, you know, that, that fan De Niro smashing the phone into the, <laughs> into exactly. it. They killed him. Yeah, yeah. I know. And yeah. so well, what do we do? Yeah, it was real, right. real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're going to wrap up here in a second, uh, but and we're going to, you know, talk a little bit about what's it like when you make it. Great. Just stay tuned on the back home network. So the crown lies uneasy on the heels of mob bosses and college coaches. If you think getting the top was tough, try staying there. And I, I look at that from a standpoint of um, you have guys that, you know, Naismith Hall of Famers that find themselves getting pushed out at the end of their careers. Um, you know, guys that maybe hang on a little too long. And I think like Jim Beheim would be an example of that, um, where he just kept chasing what, he was chasing something or continuing in the job for, for his reasons. And at the end, it, you know, does it necessarily, you know, do you ask the question of, do you want to go out a certain way? How do you want to define the end of your, of your run? And it's really hard to, to do that because of the grueling nature of the job. Um, it's constant. And now with cell phones and discords and text messaging in particular, how kids communicate, how families are set up, you bring the portal and NIL into the game, you know, assistants and head coaches, you know, there's not a whole lot of downtime or off time. There's always activity. It's not just going and, you know, sitting down with the family and eating their cookies and talking about which Baptist church you go to. It's not like blue chips anymore in that regard. It's not even like hoop dreams anymore. Because I think in many respects, families have kind of, you know, closed off certain themselves from certain influences that they weren't necessarily the case 20 or 30 years ago. But, you know, again, you look at it, you know, you look at a situation, you know, Gene Cady leaving Purdue, um, 
probably was not the way he wanted to go out. Mm-hmm. You know, train your successor, Gene. And it was kind of train your successor, but there was a kind of an implied or else, I thought, in that in that in that situation. Yeah, I did too. Um, and or you look at a you know Rick Patino and when Louisville just basically crashed itself into the Ohio River and floated down towards Evansville. And the per you know, again, the character issues, we'll call them that. Uh, it's a family podcast. Um, the character issues with him, but then also with the recruiting and some of the issues that came from how they were recruiting athletes and their families yeah. um, came into by the village idiot would say they were going to call that into question. And, you know, that kind of that tarnishing of a reputation at the end of your career. At the same time, even a guy like a Jay Wright at the end, you know, he he went out pretty much on top, you know, with the final four. Mm-hmm. But he makes the decision. It's like, you know, do I really want to stay here with all these kids nipping at my heels? And these kids are coming up through coaching. And maybe you could give it another five, ten years even in some cases. I mean, people, you know, with lifespans and life expectancies and the healthcare these guys are getting, they can go and they can survive it. But, you know, Bill Self just, you know, he's coming back from a heart attack last year at the end yeah. of his season. Yeah. Um, you know, Jill, Jim Calhoun, you know, beat cancer and then took another job you know, for a little while after that was the case, yeah. um, maybe a little less pressure. And I think it's also, I've heard before, it's hard, it's hard for programs that put a guy, you know, who maybe was at one of the prestige programs taking a level or two or three down yeah. and they're saying, wait, I don't have, I don't have a charter aircraft to go see a recruit. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, how much is my budget? Wait, is that, is that per week? No, that's yeah. your annual budget. What, what, huh? <laughs> it's yeah, like, exactly. Oh, you know, yeah. okay. Life comes out of your heart at the what, end of your yeah. Career. My per my, my my per diem now is a drive through. It's not the steakhouse now. Yeah, that those are the sorts of things that I think as guys are looking to get out. You know, it's a question of well, I've made enough money. The game might still be fun for me, but I can still talk about it. I don't I don't have to pursue this anymore. But you know, trying to stay at the top of this profession is incredibly is incredibly challenging because and the other thing is as you get older you get more stubborn in your ways and you begin to think, figure out things a little differently so i don't know i think um i think that 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 crown you know at the end of the day these coaches you know people who are doing this for a living and getting in many respects being paid very well to do so there is an incredible amount of pressure put on them and it is cutthroat and it is difficult and to make it up through the top of the ranks, you know, you, 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 you've got to, you, you've got to dedicate a lifetime to doing it. And so there's that element to it, which at the end of it, it might just be, well, you know, I want to play golf whenever I want. And I can't do that if I'm doing this. No, exactly. And, it's just like coaches, like we said before at the beginning, like coaches are human. They have their own motivations, their own challenges. And yeah, I mean, just any professional at the end of their career, you know, you just get older and you're just, your body cannot take it going traveling the same way you could when you're in your thirties or forties. So it's uh, just, there's just some huge, there's some just physical realities that, uh, that start to impinge upon this, these questions. We've heard Calipari say it now that, you know, he's, he's shifted his focus. You know, he goes up there with a teleprompter to accept a job at Rupp Arena with what, 20,000 screaming fans. And it looked like something out of a political convention. Yeah. And I'm going to give you national titles because that's what Kentucky demands. And and now you're hearing him. They just did a documentary with him, and he's talking about, well, yeah, winning's great, but you know, I really just look at the stories. I look at the kids, the lives I've helped change. Yeah. 
And so now it's almost like, are you coach? And I'm not saying you're coaching in spite of your fan base, but in many respects, you're saying what's important here is look at John Wall's career or look at, you know, give me another, <laughs> give me another one from the list, the yeah. amazing list that he's a Dorian Lamb, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're making millions of dollars in the league and their families, their 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 families' trajectories have been changed forever because of what we helped them do here at the University of Kentucky. And yeah. isn't that what it's all about? Yeah. And, you know, I can survive the message boards because it's going to cost you a lot of money to get rid of me. But at the same time, it's also a thing where that definition process, it, it is a, it is difficult, I think, for these guys, for, for, for really that ending. And when is it time to hang it up? Because, you know, you also get situations like, you know, Dean Smith, you know, where you could just hand it over to Bill Guthridge or, you know, what Kay did with Shire. You can pick your successor, give yourself the best chance for success of preserving the legacy. Uh, in, in Dean's case, you kept control of the program. You know, basically, you were the you know you were the the the, the Godfather in name, not just you know not in name anymore, but in functionality over the program itself, over the family. But there's a lot of this that you know goes into these conversations. I think, yeah. and at this point, you know what you know. Where this goes, I think in the modern world, things are going to continue to change and evolve. I think, I think it's actually going to be harder to find the coach for life anymore. Yeah, just based on more, the yeah, marketplace. Exactly. Yeah, I think expectations change. I think as the the stability of sort of players staying at particular schools changes, that's also going to like ramp up a similar instability in terms of like uh, coaching tenures. So you're just going to have a lot of like, just a more natural expectation, just like moving in and out. And I mm-hmm. think it's just as coaches, like just think how like frustrated coaches get. I can, I can tell you that I don't think Jay Wright was pleased with how the portal was functioning. I like, too. just lit, just living out here, not far from yeah. literally where he lives. Um, I heard more than enough that, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of the coaches I think are not, uh, enamored with uh, how sort of crazy and frenetic it is to like survive in the, a portal dominated world. And you throw on the second part of NIL and, and name image likeness monies and the question of, well, am I going to be expected now to go raise money for a collective? Am I going to be, you know, even though I'm not supposed to be, are we going to be negotiating with agents? Yeah. You know, am I going to get the support from my institution? I think a lot of guys, especially in kind of that next tier under, the high performing programs, the moneyed programs, you know, the old, the old guard programs, they're going to be asking those questions yeah. and, you know, well, no, it's going to cost you 4 million, 5 million a year. I'm ballparking this, you know, whatever it, whatever that figure is on top of this. Yeah. I mean, you've heard the guy in football in Maryland saying, don't build me a new facility, get me NIL. Don't build yeah. me a new practice facility. Get me yeah. that. So, exactly. so I think, I think that wraps it up for us for another episode don't you, Mike? I think so. I think this is a good one. I think so too. And you know, yeah, think, we'll, uh... um, yeah for uh, let's see, episode three, we were discussing uh, thinking about roster construction, right? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at we're we're gonna kind of take more of a instead of digging back so far in the past, we're actually gonna look at kind of what's going on right now mm-hmm. and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of you know rosters, you know that are that that are kind of in that what what Mike calls the sweet spot. And then ones that are outside and 
which ones are the good ones in those in those groups, which ones are not performing well, and which ones we kind of ugly. We just can't kind of figure them out. They're not exactly doing it to form, but something's working, but it's not working uh, optimally to say the least. Yeah. So with, with that with that title choice, I guess I'm going to have to brush up on my uh, my Clint Eastwood and Lee Von Cleve quotes for for the next one. That's that that's more your area. I will grant. <laughs> we you'll you'll have a few, and I and, and I'll I'll do my best and hold my own in that conversation. Okay, great. Well, we want to All thank right. everybody for listening once again, and have a happy and safe New Year's. Exactly. Yeah. This this I'll endless conversation was brought to you by the Back Home Network. Be sure to check out all the great content, uh, the BHN content, including Assembly Call, Doing the Work, and Crimson Cast, on YouTube and at BackHomeNetwork.com. So, until next time, I'm Mike Weymouth. And I'm Bob Motes. Have a happy new year, everybody. Bye.